You see, this is why Russian novels are so long. This is why Tolstoy has has Eugene two sentences great. in one page. It's because this is the way our mind works. But uh, my long answer to your question about maybe the other side, you know, maybe conducting or not, um, for sure, I'm now equally a performer and a teacher. It's uh, it's absolutely inseparable for me, and um, I I feel especially as a teacher. There's something in it that's more, I don't know, um, more lasting than uh, my playing. And I certainly hope that my playing will continue to speak for itself. I hope people will like it and I hope to be remembered kindly as a player. But I'm not about to stop playing, so I'm not too concerned myself with words like you know, legacy. There are over 31 million seconds in a year. How many of those precious seconds do you spend listening to music, binging the latest series, reading poetry, consuming art and media on a broader scale? In this series, I, Stefano Flavoni, am joined by the top artists of our time to discuss the method of our madness. As Miles Davis once said, don't play what's there, play what's not there. Our next guest is a good friend and a truly inspiring musician. When I was a kid growing up in New York, my mom had a friend who was a frequent patron of the Met. And knowing that elementary school age Stefano was becoming more and more serious with music, this family friend would always give us Met tickets. So I can safely say that until I got to middle school and he was off to Chicago, the sound of the oboe in real life was defined for me by Eugene Isotoff. Principal oboe of the Metropolitan Opera, principal oboe of the Chicago Symphony, and since 2015, principal oboe of the San Francisco Symphony. He may roast me a bit for starting the episode like this, but Eugene is, in all likelihood, one of, if not the, best living oboist. Configure this because I want to make sure it's using the right uh, mic. I was teaching all day, so I'm, I've oh, got wow. I've got what's known in the business as Zoom throat. 
Oh, so, I feel you. I feel you. So I just actually sat down and, you know, my dog uh, missed me all day. So she just plopped on me. So she's sleeping on my leg right now. Adorable. So, so, so you know, that's why I don't want to miss. Uh, I don't want to move the whole interface. But if you, you can hear good. me, it's No, okay. this is perfect. This right. is beautiful. Why the oboe? I know the background of you hearing it when you took your entrance exams in your uh, academy studies. Mm -hmm. Why oboe? So this is, um, so why the oboe? Well, um, I should mention that uh, both my dad and my uncle, his brother, are musicians. My dad is a violist and my uncle's a pianist. And uh, they very adamantly felt that they just did not want me, want me to be a musician because um, life is too hard as a musician. And uh, my dad is a string player, he's a violist. My uncle's a pianist. Uh, they were playing in uh, one of the two most illustrious orchestras in Russia. The, it's gone through several name changes by now. At the time, it was the USSR State Symphony Orchestra, you know, Kondrashin, Svetlanov, and all these great luminaries. And now it's called the Russia State Symphony. But uh, by any account, it was that and the rival St. Petersburg Philharmonic, which were the two greatest Russian orchestras, certainly of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, they were both there and uh, they spent their life in music. They went to the Gnesin School of Music and they did not want me to be a musician. Um, and when I was about five, maybe six years old, and when I, might, when I started showing what my dad refers to as the symptoms, mm -hmm. um, he was like, well, you know, he has perfect pitch, he's got good rhythm, he's got some musical ability. So, well, sure, maybe he could consider going to the Gnesin school. And of course, I had to take the exam. And another advantage of that school is that, uh, of course, you know, we come from a Jewish family. And um, I have to say Moscow is not the most, was not the most anti-Semitic place in the Soviet Union, but it was an issue. And it was something that... Uh, I only appreciated later because um, he thought this would be just a good place for a Jewish kid to be and not be confronted with this because half the people are Jewish anyway and, you know, sort of being a minority and whatever, who, you know, whoever you are in the musical profession sort of doesn't matter. So he thought for those two reasons, uh, fine, maybe he can take the entrance exam to the Gnesin school and I did. And um, apparently uh, they had some reservations about me and they reluctantly took me. Uh, but um, before that happened, he took me to the school, like kind of like a petting zoo to check things out. And, uh, you know, I heard some instruments played and I did not know what some of them were called at age almost six. And, you know, maybe, like maybe violin, maybe this, maybe piano. and. Then I heard from one of the rooms, there was this just sound coming from one of these practice rooms. And I, it was so long ago, I don't remember how, but somehow we asked for this instrument to be shown to me. And I was just so, so completely struck by its beauty, by how exotic it looked and how uh, it sounded and everything just the silver keys and the and the thing it just it was mm -hmm. a beautiful sounding object and it's something that i had to possess and so that instrument was the oboe and i think at that moment my dad was very relieved because he said well you know to himself he's he thought well it's okay he's going to be a musician fine but it's way too hard to be a string player 
or a piano player in Russia. I mean, come on, you're not going to talk about competition, competition, hours and hours of practicing. So, I mean, at least it's going to choose something easy. So, <laughs> um, so I chose this extremely easy instrument. And of course, actually, you don't actually get to play the oboe until you're physically, you know, at least 10 or 11 years old, because it's a really tough uh, air. I mean, wind instruments. So you, it was with an understanding that I would eventually become a noble player, but for now you play a preparatory woodwind instrument, the recorder, while everybody had to play the piano and everybody had to sing in the chorus. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of like, well, let's see how things go. He will become a wind player, probably an oboist. And uh, that's how I got started. And, you know, it, it's just... Uh, I promise we're not going to talk about reeds because then you know you don't have enough memory in in, in your computer. To oh, I, store, that was going to be my next topic. Store all the information about this, but you know this is the thing that that most people, of course, don't realize that oboists have to make reeds, and and I think this is something that they don't even tell you when you start things up on the oboe because they lure you in with this wonderful, exotic, beautiful sound and this cool looking with silver keys kind of a you know interesting object. And then years later, because you, of course you buy store-bought reeds or your teacher makes reeds for you. And then only years later, you find out that you actually have to make them yourself. And of course, by that point, it's too late to, you know, you know do anything else. So, I mean, the only two choices are either to learn how to make reeds or maybe to go to management because I just noticed this alarming trend. There's a lot of people in management of symphony orchestras and maybe opera houses that used to be oboists hmm, and they recognize and uh, I just recognize this look in their, in their eyes. We, we, we just see each other and uh, there's something that we have in common, but uh, all jokes aside, I mean, it's been absolutely my voice since uh, I start, I switched to oboe at the age of 10 and uh, I never looked back. Well, it's interesting you use the word voice because for so many composers, oboe is the definitive representation of the human voice, right? In the orchestra. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we would like to agree with that. Although, truth be told, I think the voice is something that all of us instrumentalists uh, consider to be the most perfect instrument. And I've, I did hear this from a number of people, from a number of non-oboists, I should say, that the oboe is very close to the human voice. And um, I think that when you play anything in a vocal way, any instrument can and absolutely emulates so many qualities of the human voice. But it's funny you should mention this. I remember when I came to Chicago, Berenboim, um, you know, he, he likes to, he, he's so brilliant and he's so knowledgeable and he, he's, of course, extremely opinionated as well. So he likes to begin sentences every oboe player should this, should not that, every piano player that. <laughs> and, and, and he, um, during the very, very short time that we spent together in Chicago, because I, came in it was my first year there and i it was his last season there as well so we did not overlap for for too long i was the last person he hired actually before he left hmm. so and he anyway so he's he said he said to me that just he called me to his room and he says just completely out of the blue you know you can never play one beautiful note on the piano and of course, I did not know him very well, so I'm just I'm just standing there and just waiting for him to to finish. Like, is this it, or is there more? And then he basically went on to say that you can play 
two or more beautiful notes in the piano, but not one, because all one note can do on the piano is die. And if it's a beautiful piano, you will die a beautiful death. And if it's a terrible piano, you will, you will die a terrible death. But <laughs> you can never play one beautiful note on the piano. You can play one beautiful note on the oboe because the oboe can do two things that the piano is absolutely incapable of doing. Do you know what those two things are? And... Um, I sort of, I, I, I don't even remember how concise or, you know, how wordy my answer was because I was just so starstruck just by seeing him. Of, of course, he may have been changing during that time. So, so he, he, he was changing from, yeah, I've been there in a tuxedo to, uh, other items of clothing yeah. or not, but you know, you know <laughs> so, so here I am having this incredible, like, like this is it. I'm going to remember this for the rest of my life. And, you know. But, you know, you know, those kind of moments. And I'm thinking, well, I, I guess vibrato is one of those things. He says, yes, vibrato. And the other thing is, of course, you can make a crescendo, diminuendo. You can manipulate the direction of dynamic of, the, of any note mm -hmm. in any way. Mm -hmm. And this really has remained with me so much because the piano, I love the piano. It's one of the instruments that I played. I used to play it much better. So now I, I just, I, I just... When no one's listening, I play it, and uh, it's it's a perfect instrument. It has so many incredible. It's capable of the vertical, of the music, of the harmony, of the melodies, and and, and this percussion quality structure. I mean, it's virtuosity. The rate, eighty eight keys as opposed to whatever twenty three, barely on the oboe. I mean, it's absolutely perfect. But it really cannot do these two things. These two things we can do, and um, actually, the pianists that really. Uh, have this vocal expressive quality they all are able to somehow play um, and create the illusion in fact many acts said this to me once that all pianists have to be illusionists because yes every time, exactly every time a composer writes the word crescendo you're being asked to do something that's physically impossible in the instrument mm -hmm. so those two things are really uh, the, I mean he, he spoke very passionately and he said a lot of really wonderful things but uh, this was the first incredibly important conversation that I had and this has stayed with me this has become something that I absolutely tell all my students because for all that the piano is capable of doing to not use these two elements of what the voice can do on the oboe the oboe the voice of the oboe can do it's really it would be it would be very sad and I think that um, it's it's surprisingly difficult to uh, verbalize something so non-tangible and that's you know it's one of the things that's you know people like Barrymore people like Levine that they're able to put into into words something that you know we, we feel it we we taste it we know what it sounds like but to actually to express it in a way that's recognizable and useful and simple to understand not just with professional musicians but especially with students that's been really, it's, it's amazing. And it's been, it's been wonderful that it's been really uh, fortunate that I had a chance to somehow witness that throughout my career. Well, I have to ask because there are differing opinions on this. You know, Levine, Barenboim, there are people who, uh, who did talk in rehearsal. Absolutely. Uh, some players have mixed opinions. Did it, does it ever tick you off? 
when a conductor says a lot but doesn't have too much to say or vice versa doesn't say enough well yeah of course i mean there's you know it's funny so again speaking about chicago chicago used to have these wonderful uh folders in which the part each part of the orchestra each stand you know was kept and uh these folders i don't know they date back to i don't know i mean decades and and we like to if you really want to know what the orchestra thinks about the conductor don't read the review because that's different but just go see if you can get a ticket uh behind the orchestra and then get a good pair of uh like a magnifying you know whatever it's called binoculars and try to read what we wrote on the inside of the folder about the conductors because there's very concise statements and that some of the conductors said both wonderful statements and not so wonderful and uh, this will give you an idea but uh, just more generally speaking of course there's people like Heiting who say so much with their eyes and so little with their mouth they just uh, use very very few words and it's not for any kind of a language bear it's just not their style they like to uh, you know they like to generate this kind of uh, energy and this kind of a uh, you know communication then there's people like Levine but also of course when and and Berenboim and and Gergev and you know several others but you know they're very different personalities of course but of course when you're playing opera there's I mean, yes, it's a repertory orchestra. And, you know, some of my symphony friends used to say when I was in the Met, well, you know, the turnover of repertoire that we have is is much more. And it's true. Just the number of pieces, you know, the uh, the number of works in the symphony repertoire turns over more quickly. But the amount of music that you play in the opera house is just so incredibly vast. And the styles mm -hmm. are so diverse. And there's such a tremendous relationship between the words and the music and that's actually one of the things that i've really understood in the met that of course i knew that the voice is wonderful and you know be, i i understood it theoretically that and i was so looking forward to um being in the met because of course i would get to play principal finally and because i would be a part of this great orchestra and singers and everything but i never really appreciated the the fact that the singers they almost always know what they're singing about mm -hmm. because of the words the only time when they don't have the words is when they sing something called vocalese you know and just a couple of vowels but that's like one percent maybe at most of what they do the rest of the time they have words they know what the story is they know how the music is is woven in the texture of the story and complements each other so they you know the good ones anyway they they really take you know they take trouble to you know talk to thomas hampson he he, he will really have advice <laughs> i mean he'll have a few things to say about uh uh how much singers need to understand the relationship between the text and the music and um but we instrumentalists we never have words we play things that are called symphony number one concerto number two movement number three very rarely we might get like a general title of a work like the pastoral symphony or the eroica which was which was not even called that by beethoven uh, but uh, the very very frequently we we have um something that's 
Britain, six fantasies, six metamorphoses after Ovid, and each each movement is titled. But that's just that's the that's the most that we can get. Uh, is a title. It's a description of the entire movement. But most of the time, we don't have words, so we have to understand what is the story about. And I think in regards to the question about conductors speaking in rehearsals, and if if I mean, look, it's it's all too easy to make fun of conduct of a conductor who talks too much. Really, I so very much appreciated that. But you know, when I was in the Met. Levine's approach to it, and of course the Met Orchestra approach to music was number one. What is our purpose? Our purpose is to serve the composer. So uh, we, the musicians, we may not know what the text is. It has nothing to do with our, you know, ignorance or not being able to do anything. It's just that sometimes you well, you don't know because there's a lot of text. There's a lot of we can't even hear the text because a lot of times it's really thickly orchestrated. If you're sitting next to the brass, you know, you can't hear maybe some of the really crucial words that are being done, that are being spoken at that moment. And it's interesting because there's some, like in Verdi, for example, there's such a close relationship between text and music. It's, it's really, it's, it's really, really uh, inseparable. And one of the masters. I don't, I, I, I don't speak uh, German, uh, so I try to understand it as best as I can. Uh, but, you know, in the context of my life in the Met, there's just so many, so many hours and, you know, there's just so much music. There's one part in Siegfried, which was, it's, it's the most, uh, I don't know if it's the most, but it's just a really fantastic, or he, he says something and then there's this fantastic orchestral explosion. And I, I was, um, actually Muti likes to mention the story too you know he's very proud oh sorry about that let's let's pause it for a second okay. I think the dog wants to go upstairs let me let me <laughs> Stefan hold on a second I'm gonna let her out no worries, no worries. One, second. one second so uh let me just yeah back getting, to Levine back, back to, to back to Siegfried Siegfried I remember this I, I noticed this part in Siegfried because Muti mentioned it during his regular you know german bashing sessions and uh, uh hurrah for verdi which is at least he sincerely believed that but anyway there's this Siegfried says something and then there's this extraordinary orchestral orgiastic beautiful explosion of sound and this music is so passionate and i just had to look up what does he say in this moment and in this moment he says bring me my horse <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm not I'm not sure uh, how you know what 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 that has to do with uh, with the music that uh, that follows, but it doesn't always work that way. But uh, I really want somebody on the podium to when there's something extraordinarily important, when the relationship between the text and the music is so in so crucial. I want to know about it. And actually, speaking of Muti, I remember when we were doing the Verdi Requiem in Chicago, um, there's one of the movements in Diacide is um, Rex. Rex Tremende. Rex Tremende Maestatis. And it starts out, there's this big orchestral power, like almost rock and roll, like power chords, the um, ba-bum, 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 diminuendo, deceptive cadence, 
very quietly. And then the chorus sings, Rex tremente maestad. It's such a wonderful moment. Yes. So respectfully, of course, if anything in Chicago is uh, ever ready to go into Bruckner mode. So everything is... Uh, if, if you turn on the autopilot, it's, it's going to be very lush, very sort of uh, dramatic, thick, and uh, etc., which works very well in Bruckner. And they sang it, of course, very beautifully. And uh, this was at the, at the very beginning of Muti's tenure. So he did not feel as, as comfortable as he feels now because you know, he knows that the orchestra loves him, the city loves him. But he was a little bit uh, more careful in his remarks to the orchestra and the, and the chorus so he stops he stops at this moment he says uh, in this very charming italian accent he says i'm sorry it's so beautiful you know you sing so beautiful but you know in this moment you're addressing god right like you're addressing rex tremente maestatis the awesome and and uh, majestic the the terrible and the majestic king right i mean you're addressing god in this moment mm -hmm. and you know god sometimes is not a nice <laughs> yep <laughs> you know and just if you and then he spoke just for a few minutes he he tried to just make us make the chorus just feel what it would be like if you actually imagine that you are addressing god you would be terrified that that's like the dominating emotion that you would be experiencing not like hey how you doing god you know it's beautiful music here i mean it's and when when we did it again when when you're in the state of awe and and just uh what, you know i'm trying to think of, of the uh reverence that's the word when you this with the spirit of reverence and awe you can maybe utter one syllable at a time so it became rex you know like this and that was just chills it was so effective and it was not a question of um speaking to the orchestra or to the chorus to to make any kind of a quality improvement it has nothing to do with that because you know the quality of, of the singing of the playing was already exceptionally high this was just a more truthful character it was more genuine story it was a more believable story and when conductors do things like this you know when when it, it's really thrilling and when my non-musician friends ask me what does a conductor do really i mean can't you do this you know so the short answer is absolutely I can. I can get on the podium. I can rent a really good looking tuxedo. I can get my hair done and and I can conduct Stars and Stripes and maybe, you know, something more complicated. Oh, I can, come on. I, I can do it really well. But the thing is, um, it's so much more than that. And especially the part of the work that the conductor does that nobody sees in the concert. That's what you do in the in the rehearsal. Not in the performance, in the performance as well, but in the rehearsal, how you really create your sound, how you with with whatever orchestra you're with. It was remarkable to see how the sound would change uh, in every great orchestra where I played, and maybe not so great orchestra, just anywhere I've, I've seen somebody who really brought concrete ideas and how people would respond to them. And of course, uh, during the time when 
Chicago had, you know, you know, before Muti when we had Boulez and Haitink, just the difference between the two of them when they would conduct the repertoire like Mahler one or anything, you know, Chicago plays Mahler once every, I think, 10 days. But, <laughs> Probably. You know, uh, when, when they would conduct a Mahler symphony, Mahler one, Mahler two, Mahler five, I mean, we don't need the music for it. But the sound that they would bring to the orchestra without, uh, I think Boles talked a little bit more than, than Haitink. But it was truly remarkable to see what they can do with the sound of the orchestra. And uh, of course, here when we we know Mahler in San Francisco very well because of the extraordinary amount of Mahler that Michael Tilson Thomas has brought here, and um, and also of course his Mahler has changed, and you know he's changed, and everything um, everything about it is so it's. You know, there's not, that's the beautiful thing about music is that there's never one right definite way of doing things. That's, that's beautiful. They're, they're definite wrong ways, that's for sure, but they're no different right ways. And to see how, uh, whenever we would do Mahler Symphony with him uh, here, how that would change uh, the sound of the orchestra. Um, so it, it, it can make a really big difference and I, I definitely respect that very, very much. So you mentioned a way of doing things the right way and the wrong way. And I do want to get on that for a second. Um, but as far as playing in an ensemble, would you ever switch to the other side? Would you ever take up the podium? Is that the other side? <laughs> well, How divisive. Uh, <laughs> hey, listen, there's a union and there's a non-union musician on stage. That's right. That's right. I guess that's the non-union gig. <laughs> um, I don't know. Especially actually. these is, times, is it, it different? Is it non-union? I don't even know. I, yeah, I, I man. Think, I mean, opera, right? assist, opera assistants are union. Everyone else is uh, non-union. Well, um, you know, I've I've learned not to say never. I've said never so many times, and, and then I've changed my mind. So you know, it's a creative it's a creative path. So who knows? Is the short answer? I don't know. I don't think so, simply because um, there, there's been a major change in my life because I thought I, I always saw myself as a performer. And I am a performer, and I love it, and it's a huge part of my identity. The, the huge change that took place was that it was the only part of my identity, and I did not want to mm -hmm. do anything else. And then when I was in my early 20s, someone asked me for a lesson. Hey, Hey, you know, can I, it wasn't even the formal, can I play for you? Sure. And, um, I felt really good about being asked. I felt kind of like a rock star. Cool. I'll show him a lesson, you know? And I realized probably within, if not seconds, within minutes, then I have absolutely no idea how to teach. Really? Because for one simple reason is that teaching is not about you. Teaching yeah. is about what you can do for someone. And it's specific person to person. It's specific. It's exactly. It's specific to that person. And whatever worked for me, some of it may work for someone else. Some of it may not. And so forth. So the huge change that took place is that little by little, as I took more interest in teaching and just this incredible inability i should say of mine to just because i i really i approached this i mean how could this be 
I'm capable of all these uh, nice things and I can, I can do uh, a fairly decent job on my instrument uh, and the audiences seem to like it, the colleagues seem to like it. How come I, I, I have so much trouble passing this on to, you know, to another being? And little by little, I started getting more curious about this. And then I started getting into teaching. Then, of course, um, I, I moved to New York. Then I, I was very, very fortunate to join the faculty at Juilliard School. And by then, little by little, uh, with tremendous help from mainly uh, conductors, the good conductors in front of me, um, and with the great help of my uh, fellow colleagues because that's what we do in rehearsals sometimes we have to help each other do better unlock you know whatever you, you know you can do so by watching people by a lot of advice and by my own experience by late 20s I realized hey you know what I'm really I, I love this and I'm I think I'm starting to get it I'm starting to get how to approach and give what I know how to do to another human being. So all of a sudden, fast forward to now, I've been teaching for, well, a quarter of a century. And it's funny because I started teaching, I was the same age as my students too. And I would go to all these festivals, like I would go to Verbier or something. And, you know, you start having lunch, you know, jet lag, you, you, know, you meet people, have, have uh, in a cafeteria. Then a few days into it, they're like, so you're, not playing much are you you know like like why are you here <laughs> you know well because i'm actually one of the teachers <laughs> so as uh well and what and what uh what is it that oscar wilde said that youth is a disease that goes away with age <laughs> so, so uh it, it went away it went away so uh i'm nobody unfortunately none of the students somehow mistake me for one of them anymore sadly and uh, I don't, I don't get carded in stores anymore either. It's, it's so sad. It used to be so, so I used to be so infuriating. My God, how could this be? Now, would you please card me? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. I stopped getting carded, and it was fun. You? For a week. No way! Yeah. No I'm way! I'm 27, Eugene. I felt awful. Oh my God. Well, you know, I will make a prediction, Stefano. You will get carded again. <laughs> okay, I may not, but you might. Well, listen, the next time I go to a bar, I mean, I was just at one in New York maybe two months ago when things were calm for like six days. Yeah. Uh, who knows the next time I'll have an opportunity to get carded for something. Yeah. Well, um, it's, uh, it's, it's funny. It's how, how you loathe it and then you like once it's gone, you, you, know, you miss it. Exactly. Part of the human existence. So. Uh, human condition, as you know, this is my long, long win. You see, this is why Russian novels are so long. This is why Tolstoy has, has two sentences great. in one page. It's because this is the way our mind works. But uh, my long answer to your question about maybe uh, the other side, you know, maybe conducting or not, um, for sure, I'm now equally a performer and a teacher. It's, uh, it's absolutely inseparable for me. And um, I, I feel, especially as a teacher, there's something in it that's more, I don't know, um, more lasting than uh, my playing. And I certainly hope that my playing will continue to speak for itself. I hope people will like it and I hope to be remembered kindly as a player. But I'm not about to stop playing, so I'm not too concerned myself with words like, you know, 
legacy. Actually, I, I have to share this with you. I'll, I, I promise I'll come back to this. But yeah, when Mutu just got to Chicago and there were all these all these questions from all these reporters and most of them were incredibly stupid and just uninformed and had nothing to do with music. But one of them asked, this is before Muti assumed the post as music director. So they said, uh, Maestro Muti, or as, as, as they used to say, Maestro Moody. So very Midwest. He, he, he corrected them. Uh, I think by now they say Muti, but Moody. So, what do you want your legacy to be in the Chicago Symphony? And, you know, I, he, he likes to do this. Oh, I'm just a you know, poor Southerner, whatever. And, and, you know, he did a bit of that. It's, it's very charming and it's very cute. And, of course, it's not true. Certainly he's not. not a, he's, he, he's a Southerner, but he's not poor, certainly. But, uh, but um, then he got to the real answer. He said, well, you know, after all this, I want my legacy to be is this. I want, when I'm gone, for people to be able to say that Ricardo Muti was a conductor who was able to make a difference in the Chicago Symphony between forte and piano. Amen. So, amen indeed. And... Um, Getting back to playing, um, yes, I, I hope to accomplish a lot more things as a player. But as a teacher, I feel that I'm standing in front of this great big road, great big highway. And it was, if I look to the one side, it was always there before me. I look towards going to the other side and it will always be there after me. But I have this opportunity to influence this one particular small stretch of this road and I can contribute something to it and whatever I contribute to it uh, can live on and stay and speak through those who study with me and it's really it's it's so much more important I think and it's certainly more lasting than how I will play any given concert because Definitely. unless unless this this will become like the recording of yet another Mozart Oboe Concerto or Strauss Concerto or any other, however I played the solo, I do hope that people will like it. I do hope that people will remember it. I sincerely do. But I think the impact of that is not as lasting as to pass everything that, with however imperfect, whatever, however I'm able to pass what I know onto someone. And it's not just one person. I teach a lot. I, I, I teach, uh, especially in this era of Zoom, and even before, or certainly afterwards, I will continue to teach because this is really, I think, the, uh, the real investment, the real opportunity to, to pass something on. So if I would ever have a legacy, I think it will be in my teaching. I can definitely relate. I find so much of my purpose as an artist as a human in teaching in passing it on yeah. because we all learn rough lessons and we tr always try to make sure you know the next guys don't have it as rough um but you learn so much about yeah. yourself too so there's a little bit of like a self-serving thing right but well it's self-serving because um i mean first of all i you know until i was about 
uh, I will confess, um, maybe early 20s, when it came to musical things and, and perhaps non-musical things, but certainly musical things, I really thought I was always right. In other words, I was never wrong. You Mwah. are a conductor. You Mwah. are a conductor. I, well, I, sh I should have started this at, uh, at at early 20s. But, I mean, it was just I absolutely had the utmost confidence in my beliefs and how, how things should go and how the story. And the thing is, of course, it was somewhat based on uh, on some kind of artistic success. And, you know, you know, people always found my playing to be at the very least interesting and evocative. So they liked it. You know, they said, hey, you're a musical guy. And I see the reaction of, uh, of the audiences. So I figured, well, I guess, you know, I guess I do know everything. And then... I don't know exactly what what age it was, but early twenties for sure. Um, I had a profoundly horrifying thought. The thought was, it wasn't just as as obvious as, gee, well, you know, you're not always right. But it was more complicated than this. It was gradual. It was like, okay, so, you know, this is me talking to myself. You know, you change your mind so many times about so many things musically right because you grew you grew, you, know, you listen mm -hmm. so if you're always right how come you change your mind so many things about so many, i mean so, so many times it's uh -oh. how's this possible maybe maybe you're not always right maybe you don't know everything this is a like a me talking to me you know to me and um that was pretty horrifying. That was pretty shocking. And, and the thing is, of course, uh, I was just, I, you see, I don't think young people really can understand how lucky they are when they're, when they meet someone who's older, who's nurturing the experience and who sees this combination of talent, but you know, uh, well, stupidity, you know, yep. Just, I've, uh, I've gotten the and, talk too. And I had, I had teachers who, uh, just accepted me and they they thought well my great teacher Ralph Gomberg uh, illustrious former first oboist of the Boston Symphony and uh, actually he was one of the six kids um, of the Gomberg family all all went to Curtis I mean can you imagine that yeah and he and, he was a Tabuto student right yeah absolutely yeah one of the so it's it's Curtis lineage uh, on Curtis, both fronts. Absolutely. And he really, he, very early on, he said to me this incredibly empowering thing. Because, you see, I think we spend all our, uh, all our I, I'll speak for myself, but I think a lot of people can relate to this. Is I think we speak, we spend our youth sort of between total confidence and absolute uh, just insecurity. Just like knowing everything, yep. knowing nothing. You're going yes. back and forth. And... He said something so empowering to me when I was, uh, I came to him, I was 17, shortly after I moved to the United States. And he said, listen, I don't want you to become the second Ralph Gomberg. I want you to become the first Eugene Isotop. And that was just so amazing to hear. And the, the older I get, the more I realize how amazing that was to say to a student because, um, of course, we belong to to traditions. We are proud of our traditions, and it's sort of overwhelming. And not not every teacher, not every performer that I've personally met approaches 
uh, what their task is with this in mind. I think a lot of people are interested in emulation rather than creation. Yeah, and you see that in auditions and competitions you see all this the time. All the time. Auditions, competitions, from the podium, mentorships, and uh, it's just sort of... It's so frustrating. People get, like, and this goes beyond just the one one teaching. It's some instruments uh, get locked into horrible stereotypes. And yeah, their habits. Habits and limitations. And then, you know, by all accounts, the art, not just music, but just the arts are meant for expression they're not it's not you know it's not absolute it's not uh, in the case of music it's not music from computers to computers it's music from human beings to human beings and um there's absolutely more than one evocative creative way to do it of course there's many wrong ways to do it i mean there has to be like virginia wolf said there has to be in art there has to be meaning beyond the statement so you can't just just say, well, I, I feel like this. That's why I do it just because. I mean, you know, there has to be a reason why you do it. It has to make sense. But um, when I think what led to this realization is that, of course, you mentioned Tabito, is that Tabito brought uh, not just to American um, oboe playing, but to American wind playing, the concept of flexibility and a concept of vocality. Because uh, we, we, don't, we don't play violin violin has been the same way for three four hundred years i mean they have actual traditions that span centuries same for singing now granted the, the you know the violin playing and singing is of course it's evolving and there's things to do to create to find and to grow but we play very young instruments so it's especially confusing when um you're playing um an instrument and then somebody like Tabito shows up and says, well, hey, what if we form the embouchure this way? What if we examine how vibrato is produced, not just uh, in a way that it's been used so far in the oboe, but listen to how it's produced on the violin and the voice. Let's scrape our reeds a certain way and so forth and so forth. So this concept of flexibility in order to be flexible, it, it's basically it's very scary. It's very scary to welcome the concept of flexibility. It would be much safer to just get locked into what you think works and just do that. It's sort of and, the dogma approach. Yeah. This is the way it's always been done. You know, this is the way it's going to, you know, that's the way my teacher did it. That's the way I'm going to do it. And that's the way I will pass it on. And I'm sad to say that even though Tabito tried so hard to uh, avoid this exact thing, this concept as alive and well in particularly in the world of oboe playing today and um there's um we, we don't need to go into the dark world of oboe politics but clearly there's to this day there's a very big difference between what's generally known as the european style of oboe playing and the american style and that's wonderful i think that's uh that's terrific that there are differences. And of course, under the general umbrella of European oboe playing, uh, there's a German sound, there's a French flexibility. Mm -hmm. And then in American sound, there's, it used to be more pronounced Cleveland versus Philadelphia. And I, and it really was versus, I mean, it was, if you're not, Oh, definitely. That, if you're not you know, with us, you're against us. And, 
and I'm very, very happy to see that in the, at least in the 21st century, these sort of, um, these are not traditions to the, you know, these are musical blinders. I think that it's very hard to find the delicate balance between preserving, keeping the tradition, learning from the tradition, and also learning from um, other other ways of doing the same thing, other other players. And this goes for both players who play your instrument or beyond. It's just that I mentioned this, I mentioned the elbow because they're really, I mean, sure, there's schools for flute, there's a French school, and, and there's the French bassoon, and there's the Viennese oboe. I mean, you know, there are differences in other instruments. But I just having been with, you know, with, this, with this instrument, you know, my whole career, the amount of just like dogmatic dismissal of just about anything else outside of your own, you know, zip code is unfortunately alive and well. I'll just, I'll just say that it's not as bad as it used to be. And I think part of this is just, I think people listen more. I think the you know recordings are available now in most cases for free, even on YouTube, you could just come and hear. People travel more, people study abroad, they study with other um, other uh, with teachers who play in different schools and different orchestras. So I think it's starting to happen. And I think the young generation, the current generation, um, I think because of all of this, they're just more open-minded. I think they're more eager mm -hmm. to um, understand, while we love and so proud of the American oboe sound, the American oboe traditions that came from Tabito, and so forth. And I say this with great pride because Gomberg was Tabito's student, so Tabito was my teacher's teacher. I'm, I feel very close to him, and I'm certainly one of the of the bearers of the tradition. But even if you look at the history of the oboe in Philadelphia, where Tabito played, um, John Delancey, who came after him, he was a different player. Certainly stood on his shoulders, but he was a different player. He sounded like John Delancey. Then Dick Worms played. He came after he succeeded him. His student in Philadelphia, he sounded uh, like 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 Richard Worms, like Dick Worms, and they made a, a highly controversial at first decision to hire Philippe Tondre, who was uh, like Tabito French, but unlike Tabito, you can't possibly categorize him as a quote-unquote American oboist. Hmm. But is that really something that's important in music? What label does a player have? Does a player, yeah. does a player fit um, any kind of a label? And why? And why is this even a conversation? So I think that uh, Philippe is going to, he's a terrific player. He's very young. He's very gifted. He himself is French, very German trained. So, I mean, he already has a, a combination of these two qualities. But undoubtedly, a new voice comes in the orchestra every time anyone arrives, especially in the principal role. You can't just essentially do what you do. You have to adapt. And um, it's wonderful. Listen, I love to play all those wonderful solos that are written for Principal Loeb in the orchestra. It's really great. It's fantastic. I love it. That's about 2% of what I do. The rest of the time, I'm an ensemble player, which makes I'm just the same as everybody else. And I have to adjust. I had to adjust in every orchestra. And I have to adjust every, every day to whatever we are doing 
on the stage, whatever the music needs, because that's really what my job is, not to fulfill, uh, you know, my e egotistical uh, goals, how to serve my instrument better, but how to serve the music better with my colleagues. So it's a constant flexibility really um, is, is, is a key to sanity here. And I think that um, the, these labels are slowly starting to go away. And I think it's a really, it's a wonderful thing. It's not a question of abandoning traditions. We're very proud of our traditions. It's, it's a question of not replacing. It's a question of adding. Definitely, definitely. I mean, the example I always give, uh, you talk to violinists, especially the ones who are focusing on the the hip movement from the 80s, you know, historically and performed uh, performance. You ask them about vibrato, right? And yeah. they'll all say, no vibrato, use it as an ornament, very rare cases. That's fine. But that comes actually from the Leopold Mozart 1756 violin treatise, right? Mm-hmm. You know what Gemignani wrote five years prior? Only five years. That's that's like no time in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. He said, vibrato should be used on the violin as often as possible. As often as possible, Eugene. That's Italy to Salzburg. That's not that far. Really? Um, it's interesting. I ask my students uh, this question in regards to vibrato. Do you know the difference between jewelry and bling? <laughs> Eugene, what it would be to be a fly on the wall in your lessons. And I love to get all kinds of colorful answers. But in one way or another, people always, <laughs> always comment that um, basically, however appropriately or inappropriately or you know, ridiculously they phrase, it's, it's a completely ridiculous question. I understand that. But, but the purpose is very sincere. People end up saying that, well, jewelry sort of enhances the person so the main impression is still of that is of a, of a person um, and blinks purpose is, is sort of is it serves its purpose is itself and that's absolutely my approach to vibrato particularly in the elbow actually if you look at the word embellishment to imbellire imbellimento right to exato uh, to uh, I don't know how I say this in English to make to make something to beautify there we go to beautify something Embello, to, exactly to embellita to to make something more beautiful so that is the purpose of vibrato and of course we talked about you know uh, the the way that Berenboim suggested uh, that you know the piano players can only dream of doing this I mean this is very much a vocal thing this is one of the things that can really transport a woodwind voice to something that's so 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 incredible just one note sometimes and actually if you want to complete uh baron bond's phrase about this advice he said that every oboe player should attention it's a dangerous be dangerous way to to begin a sentence but every oboe player should have three different kinds of vibrato slow and wide fast and shallow and one in the middle and if you have more than three, that's great. If you have 33, even better. But these three, we really have to have. It's so it's absolutely necessary. And I love I love to tell the story because he left out a really important secret secret option number four, non vibrato. Because 
because the way we get from vibrato to non-vibrato or from non-vibrato sometimes we start really cold and and we open up a phrase and it's just pure magic and and we just like the voice sometimes you can just bring so much meaning to just how you begin anything and and um the purpose another thing is when you teach uh you have to really come up with easy uh specific words and and i will a little bit make fun of conductors at this point because a lot of conductors they might have an idea about sound uh, you know and it might be a good idea they just have no idea how to get the orchestra to do it yeah how because, to translate it into because something they that's say understandable. A, an orchestra i mean a player um a soloist i mean so can you make this more expressive well gee yeah uh or like you know there's a famous uh in the oboe world, at least, it's a famous uh, line when when Metropolis asked Harold Gomberg, my teacher's brother, principal oboist of the New York Philharmonic, he said, uh, "Oboe, can you change color in this measure?" And and and, and in, in, you know, to which he replied, "Sure, Maestro, which color would you like?" Right. <laughs> so uh, there, it's very, very, it gets very vague. You know, like yeah. if you say this, you know, play this like a sunset kind of request. Yeah, maestro, is that louder or softer? Well, it doesn't have to be that uh, that simple. Although in my folder, I will say, I I will say in, to that point in my in my in the Chicago folder that I had, uh, there was a quote from Schulte, um, and it was it was undoubtedly one of my predecessors, uh, Ray Still, who wrote this maybe thirty years ago. He said, uh, every conductor, this is you know. Quoting Schulte, every conductor should say one of the following six things to the orchestra louder, softer, faster, slower, higher, lower. <laughs> George Schulte. So I mean, there's a little more to it than that. But you know, if you can if you can direct, you know, traffic at least with these six correctly, I think you're doing pretty well. You I'll know, tell but, you, yeah. I'll tell you, Eugene, uh, it's funny you mentioned that quote because I was very familiar with it. And my first job out of undergrad, I was 21 years old, was in Shanghai, China. And literally the first six words I made sure I knew in Mandarin <laughs> were slower, faster, louder, softer, higher, lower, also, and start and stop. Wow. That's it. That's important also. Do, do you still remember how to say that? Uh, my Chinese is pretty terrible oh these days. This is six years ago, man. Wow. That's impressive. Of course, I don't speak. Uh, I don't speak Chinese, so yeah, I could have been uh, cursing you out. It could have been just uh, you know, you know what you had for dim sum yesterday in San Francisco. Listen, I I, hey, I won't start with the Russian because on Call of Duty, I break it out to freak people out. Sometimes <laughs> is that right? Is I never played yeah. that game. Oh, it's 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 hysterical. <laughs> it's bet. hysterical. You're playing, you know, with people half my age, so uh, you know, and you're just and they're beating ran- you. Oh no, 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 no! Are you I will never admit. No, I'm terrible. I'm awful. I'm absolutely awful at those games. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, but it's entertaining. I I mostly play chess, honestly. Well, I know you asked me the other day, I, dude. Sh- I gotta get you uh, into this. I mean, I so of course everybody's into chess these days because of of the Netflix, uh, you know, Queen's Gambit. Everybody's, uh, which was apparently, um, you know, they use Kasparov as the you know what do you call it. The, the the consultant for the show. Yeah, I still haven't seen it. Oh, you'll love it then if you like chess. I think. Yeah. It, it, no, it's on it's my list. It's, 
the glamour of chess. I mean, I think it's the first time uh, where you can put like a, a, a major sex symbol actress who is also brilliant and, and make the show about chess. I, I don't know another show like this, but um, I think it's extraordinarily well done. I think she's a, she, she does a terrific job. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think she's beautiful and intelligent and just full of fire in the show. Fantastic. She's half Russian, half Argentinian. Go oh, figure. there you go. Go figure. Sort of makes sense, right? In this new segment on the podcast, I spin a wheel to randomly pick standard orchestral excerpts and solos, and our guest has to tell a story of the worst performance of it they've played or heard in an audition. No prizes, just flagrancy and honesty. This is the Wheel of Shit. I have a game for us to play, by the way, to wrap this up. Yeah. So I have a wheel in front of me, and on this wheel, I have all standard oboe and English horn excerpts. Oh my god. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to spin the wheel a couple times. You're going to tell me the worst interpretive choice either you or someone else has made in an audition on that excerpt. Okay, go for it. I, like, I want the real bullshit that you Sure. Hate. All right. Here we go. The first spin is <laughs> Berlioz, Romeo and Juliet, Romeo alone, 13 measures before figure 19. Right. Well, um, okay. <laughs> I got to say, so first of all, uh, you, you need to uh, do something about uh, copywriting this game because I love it. I think this. I think this has a real, a real future. And every in, instrumentalist who's come on, I've, I've asked oh this similar game. It's sort of like what is this game that my my kids play? Uh, it's sort of like Operation, but my, but but much more violent. So well, okay. So um, I think that uh, there's a lot to choose from because first of all, it's it's a really really difficult solo because. It's it's extremely long. It's slow, and of course Berlioz. I mean, there's French music, and then there's Berlioz. So he's got a language that's so German schoolish. It's uh, he's I think is is in the category of himself by 
how expressive, how eccentric, and just how how unique it is in a way. I mean, even if you hear a few notes that of a piece you don't know, you know it's Berlioz. So um, aside from the obvious obvious fact that uh, the solo goes to really very high register, and a lot of times these notes don't come out. Um, you see, so I would just by saying that I like to approach anything with two questions, what and how. You really have to know what it is because you need to know what the music is, what the notes are, obviously what the style is, what the story is, where it's set, and you know, if possible, if necessary, you need to know about the composer, etc. It's just it's really important what the character is of the music. Once you decide what the character is, then you need to figure out how you're going to do it and the oboe. So this character is a young, young Romeo, young, you know, uh, very passionate, right? And he is alone. And you know, of course, we don't have words. We don't have words, so we have to know what he's saying. But but you know, he he is he's filled with all these teenage thoughts of love and passion and everything. That's why the solo goes higher and higher. But the way it's written. Um, there's a one, two, three, four, one dotted rhythm. And the thing is, this part of the solo is actually not so bad. In other words, it's oboistically friendly. Like, like it gets impossibly high later and you get out of breath and you, you pray to God that the high E comes out and all this other stuff. But the first, it's, it's sort of not bad. So we players, uh, there's so many of us that so we know what every note likes to do We have it's such an uneven instrument in its color so certain notes like to do certain things that don't like to do other things so the notes that are really nice and cushy they really like it when you lean into them you spend time on them you emphasize them and the bright notes the flat notes unstable notes you want to get rid of these notes as quickly as possible that's in the, in the perfect world of course that's you know that's using the music as the means to play the oboe, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely hate it when uh, la, si, do, so like every time this dotted rhythm happens, people stretch out these notes because they're really nice and sexy, full, gorgeous chocolate notes in the oboe, which has nothing to do with Romeo. First of all, let's look at the map where the story takes place. It does not take place in Germany. It's not a Brahms symphony, right? It's not even a Mahler symphony. This is mu much more south. In okay? fair, Verona, do we lay our scene? It, it's closer to the, the, it's a much spicier kind of a dynamic there. And, and you know, uh, I, this is a 16th note that does not want to be like a concerto with a fermata over it. And people stretch it out so often because it just simply wants to sound good. So uh, so anyway, uh, let's do another one. I like this game. Yeah, uh, I have the wheel of shit. I'm gonna spin it again. Okay. Um, okay. Ooh, okay. So we have second movement of Schubert nine. Oh, well, that's easy. So basically there's two pieces in the oboe repertoire that are so incredibly important and they both have the problem. Schubert nine and Beethoven three, the second movement. If you play it in the wrong way, I've been working on the railroad. <laughs> it's inevitable. And 
in the in the Schubert, not actually uh, the quote. Uh, I have a this is a quote from someone who quoted, so I can't verify it. But John Mack, may he rest in peace, uh, former principal oboist of the Queen Orchestra, uh, he was quoting Sanderling, and apparently Sanderling said that uh, this is like a young gypsy girl skipping and singing on the street. So I, I don't know why, because it just, uh, this, this stuck with me because I'm, I'm trying to put together, I get certain elements of this and I'm not sure why it especially has to be a gypsy girl, but maybe there's a certain wildness there, certain darkness there. I'm not sure why gypsy girl, but the girl, in other words, the youthfulness, the naivety, the sweetness of this, I get the skipping, you know, you're not seriously jumping like, you know, you, you, it's, and it's, all, it's also very private, uh, intimate, almost vulnerable uh, moment. So this I absolutely get. And even though the whole movement has the fatalistic pom, 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 major, major, minor, you know, this kind of like uh, fatalistic uh, trumpet called the vertical, it sort mm -hmm. of comes to this and encounters it eventually. This melody contrasts that very beautifully because so much of this is, is very sweet and innocent. And unfortunately, because it has that, I've been working on the railroad uh, energy. Yep, ba -ba -da -da -ba -ba. I mean, uh, it can, if you lose this kind of sweetness and innocence, uh, then it can immediately sound like uh, German tanks rolling into Paris, uh, you know, or, or, or oil railroads. So, and same problem with Beethoven three, the funeral march. But um, um, I think that's, uh, I think once I just unleash upon a student that uh, please don't, don't, don't play, I've been working on the railroad here. Uh, I think they just do, and it, it kind of ruins it for them at first, but then, you know, they do everything to avoid it. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, like, it's so interesting, an excerpt because it's it's piano and then it's pianissimo, right? And there's good for you because that I'm you just read my mind because he starts piano and then clarinet and you come in at exactly. the same time and play the same melody. And usually, when two voices play the same melody, that's when the composer wants it louder. And no, but he not here. It's the orchestration by making it lower. But he wants it softer. He just wants instead of oboe, he wants clobo in this moment. Schubert really and, was something else. So yeah. incredible. Okay, I got one yeah. last one and then we'll call it a night, my friend. Yeah. All right, we spin the wheel of shit. Okay. Is that what you're calling it on your blog officially? Yeah, why not? Let's we can it. have a laugh. Uh, Mozart, Jupiter, fourth movement. Um, It's particularly nasty because uh, it's the only audible... Uh, passage um, uh i have yeah. i have it written as uh it would be the beginning which book of it yeah which yeah yeah which book of uh excerpts is it that's uh that's particularly sadistic to ask a player to play a tutti part like this because uh there's a lot of single tongue involved i've actually never seen that as an individual excerpt Oh, then maybe I, I messed up. I mean, I have I have a PDF file of just clippings 
that I, I, if I see that an orchestra asks for an excerpt, what I'll do is I'll write down what the excerpt is. So in Jupiter, then... the, the thing that's really difficult in, in, the, in the last movement is right before the development section, hmm. before the, bassoon so, the oboe solo and the bassoon solo measure layer. Yum, ta-dum, ta-da-da-da-da-da-da-dum, and then the bassoon play the I same see. thing. So uh, that's, well, I don't have a funny story here, except I'll just say it's really difficult. And uh, the problem is, depending on the tempos, we have to decide whether it's a single tongue or double tongue. And it's, it's not, uh, sometimes it's sort of between the two. It's too fast for single, but too slow for double. Oof. So, um, yeah, that's just, uh, I did this uh, actually with Levine. Um, we, we did this and you know somehow anything i ever did with him it was so much easier than with most other conductors i really just that's uh well because he he among so many remarkable qualities he truly understands the nature of the instruments so uh and of course he understands voice so uh, mm -hmm. it's very it's very organic even a fast moving passage like this yeah so i'm not going to say it was easy but it was easier i'm not convinced that was a bona fide oboe extra Let's do a final one. Okay, final That's, one. Uh, final one. All right, rolling the wheel again, spinning the wheel of shit. Uh, Pulcinella, movements two and six. Great. So let's just stick with movement two, Serenata. Let's do it. So that's a really good one because there's a lot that can go wrong here. I mean, first of all, there's a bunch of uh, low C naturals which are first slurred in from the octave C's and then finally is articulated, which is difficult anyway. Downward slurs in that register are very um, idiomatic. But the thing is, even if you don't trouble to hear the full version with the singer when, when you actually know what the story is about, even if you just look at the title Serenade, uh, this is sort of a similar problem as it would be in uh, um, Romeo Lone solo. Because the beginning of the solo, the register is really nice. A lot of really dark, hefty, beautiful notes. So a lot of people sort of show uh, just how incredibly sexy and, and wonderful their E-flats are, this, you know, D-naturals. And the thing is, the name of the movement is Serenata. And when you play it in that way, when you don't realize that, first of all, the accompaniment Bum, 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 bum. Well, it sure sounds like guitar, which of course is a very traditional element of what I think a serenade, a person, a person serenade mm -hmm. would be. Absolutely. And also a serenade is usually, I'm just going to uh, speak for myself how I envision it. I envision a guy with a guitar serenading, like maybe actually Romeo and Juliet is appropriate here. Like Romeo is a... Uh, is uh, you know and also julia is she's not right in front of you she's elevated she's in the balcony somewhere so there's this kind of longing involved in distance you know because you know it's it's related to love it's a love story but maybe it it's not necessarily going to work out for you you know exactly it's uh it's not guaranteed that you will unless you don't giovanni right in this case but uh but we hope not sometimes I, unless in either case it, it it's not guaranteed that this will be a hollywood happy ending so and i think the stravinsky so cleverly 
he writes, all, he puts all these things in the music because the accompaniment in the guitar really dictates how fast the little passing 16th note should be. And also when you get later to the solo, this kind of pleading gesture, come to me, please, can this distance be shorter? Because you yearn, you reach out. And to not take advantage of that, it sounds... When you, if you strip the music of this guitar pulse, of this kind of a general mood of, of loving, insecurity, impatience, sorrow, mournfulness, uh, sadness filled with passion, and when you remove the person that for whom this serenade is being sung, being performed, when you remove this person away, if it's just, if, if you take all these things away, then you're just left with a lot of really boring. C minor, which doesn't really do anything. Mm -hmm. Plus, there's a bunch of low notes that are uncooperative, and it's it's generally speaking, it's a very difficult oboe solo, not just for technical reasons, but mainly for musical reasons. So, uh, definitely, I've crashed and burned myself on that one. And actually, I did this once uh, with um, um, with Machalaro in Chicago. He came, and um, he he it was one of the times when when unfortunately Boulez had to cancel and they, and they had to I call see. people in the last minute. Yeah. And he did it really slow, slower than I would have liked, but still very beautiful. So he, afterwards, he called me to his room and he said, I just want you to, uh, I just want to say to you that your serenata has left me breathless. And I said to him, you know, me too, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, Eugene. This is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out of your night. Likewise, very happy to, um, very happy to chat with you. And I think that uh, you know, it's 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 wonderful that, you know, uh, speaking. I just want to say that, especially I don't know when this interview will air, but now during this really difficult time when all of us just, as you described in your on your promo for the blog. Um, life has stopped so much so many crucial components of life that are, are stopped you know they put on hold we need this so much because of technology because we're still able to connect to each other with technology yeah. it's been a huge uh, the teaching on zoom the virtual interviews and the master classes that you know that we all do it's been a huge source of hope and inspiration and i certainly appreciate that uh, i could be part of this and a part of this conversation from with you from one musician to another
Each work of art, each artist, each person is another brick laid upon the choices, voices, and experiences of the past. Join me next week as we continue our journey to uncover what's not there.